0: Hi, and welcome to the Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Levinson, a psychiatrist at McMaster University. And along with geriatrician Dr. Richard Stramko and other healthcare experts, we're looking to help those affected by a dementia diagnosis. This includes patients and caregivers, as well as family and friends. We understand that a diagnosis of dementia can sometimes feel scary and confusing, this podcast, along with the rest of the iJerry Care initiative, was created in order to help relieve some of the stress that comes with a diagnosis. This series will cover a broad range of topics relating to dementia, and will look to provide answers to many of your questions. Before we get into the discussion, I want to note that this episode was initially recorded on February 27, 2019, and covers common medications used to help manage dementia symptoms, as well as how these medications are prescribed and potential side effects. Good afternoon, I'm Dr. Anthony Levinson. This is my colleague, Dr. Richard Stramco from McMaster University. And welcome to our sixth live event uh, as part of our iJerrycare series. Uh, today's live event is on the topic of medications and dementia. I want to remind people they can access the live event through iJerrycare.ca slash events, also through our Facebook page. Our goal today is to keep today's session to about 45 minutes. If you can't stay with us for the whole session, uh, we will always post these recordings uh, after a few days on the iJerrycare events page. So thanks very much for joining. You can send your comments and questions through our events page, or through Facebook and we also had a few that were posted um, after our last live event that we'll try and cover today as well. Uh, if we don't get a chance to answer everybody's questions, apologies in advance, we'll uh, sometimes record an extra session where we answer them or we try to answer some uh, in uh, in text form by responding to them. Okay, so um, why don't we start off with Just some basic background about the role of medicines or treatments for dementia. Probably important to get a few basic concepts right on that. Sure. I I think that's a great place
1: to start. So oftentimes when we are thinking about medications, we put them into several classes. So one is, do the medications actually change the course of an illness or are they disease modifying? So if I gave somebody uh, a medication, could I cure their cancer by giving them that medication, or could I get rid of their rheumatologic disease or their joint disease by giving them a medication versus uh, can I treat their symptoms? Can I manage somebody's pain? In the setting of dementia, we often talk about behavioral symptoms or boosting somebody's memory and thinking capacity. So a good place to start with dementia is that there's no treatment that's a disease-modifying therapy right now. And we covered that in the the lesson, how dementia is treated. There's a few things that have been tried for uh, Alzheimer's that has these toxic proteins, beta amyloid and tau. We've tried medications that attach to those molecules and try and get them out of the brain. We've tried vaccines to try and get Mm -hmm. those molecules out of the brain. There've been uh, many different strategies employed to help the brain heal itself and get rid of these bad molecules and unfortunately to date, there's been nothing that's been proven to slow the progression of disease or get rid of the actual underlying process that causes Alzheimer's disease.
0: So no cure and really more experimental treatments, continuing to look for um, disease-modifying treatments, but Absolutely. Um, really at an experimental stage right now. So what what does that leave us in terms of uh, the treatments? So. Uh, now we're into the realm of symptom management.
1: And in this case, the the target symptoms that we're trying to address with the medications are, can we improve your thinking ability somewhat or your cognitive performance across the domains we've discussed previously and that are noted in the, the actual lessons themselves? If you're having agitation or aggression or having some psychiatric symptoms associated with it, such as depression, anxiety, or apathy, can we improve that somehow. Is it possible, a big thing that we notice as dementia progresses, is that people lose their ability to function in their environment, doing their shopping or cooking or cleaning around the house, things like that. So is it possible for us to give a medication and improve their ability to function in their environment day to day? And that's um, the, the realm that we're looking at then.
0: Yeah, and in, uh, in the psychiatric uh, symptom world, uh, people will sometimes try medicines for the treatment of anxiety or depression or psychotic symptoms like delusions or hallucinations in the context of the various dementias, and you know I think it's it's um, I don't want to say it's completely demoralizing, but there is not great strong evidence for the role of medications, and even for symptom modification, in many cases, non-medication approaches would still be the better place to start. Is that fair to say? Absolutely.
1: I think the important thing to note about the medications, and we can break them down across their classes, so are we talking about a cognitive enhancer, enhancer, which improves cognitive capacity? Are we dealing with just the psychiatric symptoms? But uh, absolutely, I think, a non-pharmacologic, non-medical approach is always the best place to start, and then adding in medications. And also, for people to have realistic expectations yeah. around the medications that we're prescribing, they're not a miracle drug that's going to cure everything. They have um, what's called, you know, statistical significance, and that there's a small difference. It's clear across studies that, yes, they do work, but the actual size of the effect. You know, it's not. It's not.
0: None of them are very large effects. I think we could we could talk a little bit, uh, maybe later on, about uh, some of the uh, clinical pearls or tips that sure. we might uh, say, because I think one of the things that we often see in medicine generally is people will start a medicine to try to help with a symptom and even if it's not helping that much or it's not helping at all or the person's having side effects sometimes they just keep getting the medicine prescribed and we certainly see in people with dementia or older adults this accumulation of different medicines that you know maybe two years ago somebody prescribed (laughs) it as a short-term treatment for insomnia and they've just they keep on keeping on and before you know it you have three, four, five medicines that may or may not be that effective. So it's really important, and I think you and I both do this quite a bit, to to focus on deprescribing sometimes. So uh, one of the things you can do as a caregiver is advocate for your loved one and and really bring that list of medicines and say, hey, are all these really necessary? Which ones are working? Um, in, In today's live event, before we get to the questions too, we, we did want to talk a little bit about the some some complex anatomy and, and how some of these medicines work, um, because it's, it, it can be important for understanding the other side of the coin, which is when medicines and their side effects or adverse effects might be making cognition worse in somebody with dementia. So mm-hmm. let's spend a couple minutes talking about that. And then we've got quite a lot of questions coming in, which is mm-hmm. great. So we'll... We'll hit those in a moment. So, at the risk of bamboozling people with terminology, I'm going to cover a couple of the concepts and and bigger words that we're going to be talking about. And I think it's important we we will be simplifying things, but um, I think we want people to understand enough to make sense of how some of these medicines work and how some of the other medications, including over the counter ones, might cause uh, bad side effects for people with uh, with cognitive problems like dementia. So one of the heroes of our story is acetylcholine which we're going to call ACH and uh, you already referred to one uh, type of drug which is cholinesterase inhibitors or CIs and we do talk about that in the lesson on treatments and th- one of the uh, Evil characters in our drama today are anti-cholinergic drugs or anti-ACH. These are uh, medicines who have as one component of how they work blocking of acetylcholine or ACH. So let us move now to our diagram. So this is a very simplified diagram Uh, showing an imagined connection between two neurons or nerve cells. Uh, This is very simple because it turns out there's hundreds of millions of these guys in the brain and there's a lot we don't understand about the brain. But here's what we optimistically think we do understand. Um, Memory cells in various parts of the brain, including the centers that seem to be most responsible for memory and often most affected by dementias like Alzheimer's, they, they seem to rely heavily on ACH for the communication between those nerve cells. And uh, that seems to be very important in the function of memory. So back to how our CIs or cholinesterase inhibitors work. In this middle part where the ACH is traveling from one nerve cell to the other to maybe strengthen or enhance memory or communicate a memory, The the role of the CI is to actually um, block the dissolving of the the ACH, keep it in the synapse for longer so that there can be more communication between those nerve cells. So that's kind of the role uh, at the chemical level of the CI to make more ACH, more acetylcholine available for neurotransmission because in many of the dementias, there's a death of these cholinergic or ACH cells, and we think that plays a really important role in the decline of memory. Now, remember, we were talking about the, the evil anticholinergic or anti ACH. It turns out that many, many medicines block these receptors uh, on these ACH neurons. And these can be, I mean, think of so many medicines, both yeah. prescription drugs and over-the-counter drugs. So a drug like Gravol that, um, or NyQuil, drugs that people take to help with them sleep, these drugs often have anticholinergic side effects, uh, drugs to help with uh, bladder control that are often prescribed. Again lots of anticholinergic side effects and one of those side effects because of the effect on these ACH nerve cells can be worsening memory. So you and I have probably both seen uh, patients on uh, various anticholinergic medicines who look like they have a dementia or maybe they have a dementia and it's gotten worse since those drugs have been prescribed does that is that fair yeah i know
1: that makes sense it's always the first step if there's something you can reverse or take away before adding anything on uh, especially when they're medications that have known cognitive side effects then definitely get rid of them
0: so um, you know important to bring that full list of your medicines to your pharmacist to your family physician, uh, if you're fortunate enough to have a geriatrician or a psychiatrist, and one of the things they'll be looking for is to see whether or not any of the medicines you're taking are interfering with this system in some way. So that's kind of our our quick overview of um, the ACH system and why cholinesterase inhibitors Mm -hmm. may help to boost that system and how Anticholinergic medicines and drugs that have anticholinergic side effects can sometimes cause cognitive impairments through that mechanism. Okay, shall we mm-hmm. go to some questions for now? Um, here is a good one and a complex one. <laughs> I'm going I'm to pick a simpler one to start. So here's a good question from Toronto What is your opinion recommendation for medical marijuana? for an 80-year-old with dementia and severe arthritic pain?
1: I think it's uh, it's complicated because there's not a lot of science to back up treatment of uh, people that have dementia. And I think medical marijuana in general is a, an evolving field and one that we don't have a lot of hard and fast answers for. And so one is, is there any evidence for treatment of pain associated with, you know, joint pain with medical marijuana? And then could the people that are older that have cognitive impairment be more susceptible to side effects? So I've, I've been kind of staying away from that, especially if the tried and true methods haven't been used first. So regular use of Tylenol uh, on an ongoing fat fashion is a, a better treatment uh, because of the, the lack of cognitive side effects or using something like Voltaren, which is an anti-inflammatory cream and then gradually stepping up to using maybe an, uh, a by-mouth medication, anti-inflammatory. Um, but that wouldn't be my first step. I yeah. would probably try the, the tried-and-true methods that we know that don't have cognitive side effects and using the lowest dose possible for any drug that you would use to control pain um, in that setting. Uh, and I, I don't use medical marijuana in my practice currently because of the absence of evidence especially amongst cognitively impaired individuals.
0: So I I will totally agree with you. What I would say is right now, there is no evidence for cannabis, THC, CBD in the treatment of dementia or the use of, uh, or or help with um, managing the symptoms. There are some studies underway, but if you look at the quality of the current scientific research on this, there is not enough evidence to recommend mm-hmm. cannabis for in, the, in, in somebody with dementia. Secondly, cannabis would not be a first or a second or a third line treatment for arthritic pain. It's a third line treatment for what we call nerve pain or neuropathic pain in the setting where mm-hmm. somebody has not responded to at least three of the first or second line treatments. So in, we actually had a couple of other questions related to mm-hmm. cannabis and we'll, we'll, we'll cover those off. But I, I think um, you know maybe you could say the jury's out with respect to some of these trials looking at whether it may be helpful and not harmful, but the current state of evidence would say mm, I would not recommend cannabis in, in this setting.
1: And there's nothing to say that this knowledge uh, set won't evolve over the next few years. Maybe somebody will do a well-designed, randomized clinical trial in this setting, and it will prove it, but right now... Yeah, the right there's, a, there's a very
0: uh, good researcher doing uh, work mm-hmm. at Sunnybrook, and, and I think there's been some encouraging results with, um, with certain cannabis-related uh, products, but again, small studies, and mm-hmm. really not one where you'd say, oh, let, let's try this first, kind of. Um, does it make a difference what kind of dementia a person is suffering from? So it's a question from Calgary. It's And and I guess uh, one of the, I'm not sure whether it's a question specifically related to whether it makes a difference in terms of the medications used mm-hmm. or maybe a, a more general one. So do you want to answer it in a, in a general way first and then a, uh, may, maybe specifically we'll talk about medicines?
1: Sure. I mean, it does because people like having... I think, first of all, people like having a specific diagnosis. It's hard just to say that you have dementia and then the family has to go and read through, well, do I have dementia with Lewy bodies? Do I have Alzheimer's disease? Do I have Parkinson's disease, dementia? That's too overwhelming. So it does matter because the different um, dementias have different symptoms and different physical examination signs that we should be able to be fairly specific about. So um, I think that's the first step. The the second step is that they all have different pathology, meaning the insult that's happening to the brain when you look at it under a microscope is very different. So the toxic protein that we've described previously in dementia with Lewy bodies is called alpha-synuclein. I know it's a complex technical term, but that's much different than the tau and beta-amyloid that you see. And so if you were trying to treat those diseases with disease-modifying therapy, you would certainly want a different approach because they're different diseases. The the next step is um, when we're talking about treatment with, let's say, a cholinesterase inhibitor trying to boost the levels of acetylcholine or ACH to improve cognitive function. Alzheimer's disease definitely has a lower level of acetylcholine than some of the other dementias. Dementia with Lewy bodies probably has the lowest amount of acetylcholine or ACH in the brain, so they're more likely to respond to... Something like a cholinesterase inhibitor in clinical trials, whereas um, behavioral variant frontotemporal dementia doesn't respond at all to cholinesterase inhibitors. Yeah. So it does—it
0: so, does make a difference, both in terms of all of, of those understanding the diagnosis and yeah. knowing, uh, having a better sense for the family too on how the journey may go. I mean, even though there's some variability for sure, and I think uh, for the medication management, some dementias may be have a slightly better chance of responding to Mm -hmm. medicines like the uh, cholinesterase inhibitors or the CIs. For sure though, some of the medicines that are sometimes used in the management of agitation, antipsychotic drugs, uh, people with Parkinson's disease dementia or Lewy body dementia may be even more sensitive to the adverse effects from some of those treatments. So again, that, that would be another reason why it can definitely make a difference uh, what kind of dementia a person is suffering from.
1: Maybe it's a good time just to mention the different cholinesterase inhibitors Mm. because we've been talking about them so much. So there are three common cholinesterase inhibitors that we use in clinical practice. One is uh, Aricept or Dinepazil. That's the, the the trade name and the generic name that you have. And that's a once daily medication, usually around five to 10 milligrams. There's another medication called Galantamine, or reminil would be the trade name used, and then finally Rivastigmine or Exelon.
0: And, and why would somebody pick one of those over another one? Are there, are right. there sort of preferred approaches?
1: They, there's probably more studies done with Aricept than any of the other medications, and certainly more studies done in Alzheimer's disease, dementia with Aricept than the other medications, but there's no clear winner uh, that one is much better than any of the others that we can tell
0: so i've heard some geriatricians say you know these are not miracle drugs but sometimes i see people in my practice who they refer to as super responders Mm -hmm. that there are a portion of people who may have a a really robust response is that something that you see in your clinical practice, or, or do you see this as sort a of super responder? Yeah, and
1: I, I mean, I wouldn't call it a super responder. The, the mechanism of these drugs in our studies, or the way we see them work, is not that they actually improve a lot of people's function. They just uh, mask the deterioration so might, over time. might slow the progression. And so that's the normal case that we've seen across most of the studies. However, when you see a person that improves, And I wouldn't say dramatically; it doesn't reverse their cognitive impairment, but their level of attention or arousal improves quite a bit. Um, I I definitely do see those, and more often than not, I'll see those uh, responses amongst people that have dementia with Lewy bodies, especially if they have more of the psychiatric. um, I would agree. The ones, the ones
0: that I've seen. Uh, who have a, a kind of response, it's, it's probably that there's something else going on that's improved, uh, either yeah. a Lewy body one that sometimes looks like confusion or delirium or they have like an anxiety or depression mm-hmm. and, and that improves at the same time. Uh,
1: and I think the challenging part about um, that is that there's no way to predict. Yeah. And the opposite is true where people will say, well, I don't see a big response in my loved one but that's not what you're looking for. Yeah. You just know that if you studied that patient, paid person and followed them over time, their symptoms would be better if they were taking the pill versus taking a placebo. Can,
0: I think it can be a tough and a, and a stressful decision sometimes mm-hmm. for families and for the patient about, you know, is it is it helping at all? Has nothing happened? How do I know? Should I stop it? And there isn't always an easy answer on that. Some of it depends on whether somebody's having a lot of side effects. Um, and I think, yeah,
1: no, it makes a lot of sense. And we'll counsel people on what they can expect in terms of side effects. So um, most commonly people will experience stomach upset. So nausea, hmm. decreased appetite, occasionally in severe circumstances, they'll have vomiting or diarrhea. There are instances where because acetylcholine or ACH is involved in your heart rate, when you boost the levels, it can slow your heart rate people may actually pass out or feel weak or tired because of uh, a slow heart rate. It can cause confusion, right? So it can worsen yeah. symptoms in some people and can certainly cause bad dreams in some people. You probably shouldn't take this medication. It, you definitely should not take this medication if you have an active seizure disorder or active bleeding from your gastrointestinal tract as well. And one thing I think people will come up against these symptoms when they're first starting a medication. like. You know, they're feeling nauseous or they, you know, they're feeling an upset stomach. They have diminished appetite or a little bit of diarrhea. But generally, over time, you'll be able to see diminishment of those side effects. So I encourage people, if they're mild side effects, to really try and push through because they won't see the benefits unless they get through that initial phase. But definitely, if you're causing a lot of side effects and diminishing somebody's quality of life yeah. for a drug that's not a miracle drug, then you definitely would want to stay away from it.
0: So here's a question. Any suggestions for treating agitation or aggression? Uh, Respiridone 0.25 milligrams twice a day and Seroquel 12.5 milligrams twice a day, not helping. Also using Exelon patch uh, times for a year. Uh, father is experiencing caregiver burnout with mom and also experiencing insomnia and using mirtazapine, 15 milligrams at night. I'm not sure if the the father's the one having insomnia or whether that's the the patient. And again, we we should specify we're not really Mm -hmm. able to give direct medical advice, but we want to make this more uh, broadly applicable in terms of some learning points. And, um, you know, of the medicines used, so I guess step one, management of agitation and aggression, non-pharmacologic approaches <laughs> are probably the best bet. Medicines are kind of a last resort. A lot of them do have risk of serious adverse effects, uh, including death. And, uh, you know, so they are they have other side effects as well. So we we don't tend to recommend them. I think it's fair to say, too, that there's not a ton of evidence that these mm-hmm. medicines that we do often use, and you can see this is somebody who's you know, had a couple of trials of different antipsychotic medicines. So both risperidone and quetiapine are two different classes of antipsychotic medicines. So, you know, people use these medicines, even if there's not a ton of evidence. Um, Risperidone would probably be the best evidence uh, Mm -hmm. medicine. And that's, you know, that dose is not unreasonable. I guess one of the things would be, you know, uh, trying to understand the behaviors, understand the environmental triggers. Um, those two medicines, I would say, are fairly commonly used, mm-hmm. and those are not outrageous doses. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, what what do people do after that? Well, sometimes people look at trials of other classes of medicines. If you say, look, two antipsychotic medicines, which are, you know, maybe the the best we've got, well, has there been a trial of a mood stabilizer? Has there been a trial of a antidepressant medicine? Uh, has there been a trial of other medicines that sometimes can be helpful with responsive behaviors? So it it's maybe highlights the lack of there being a, a clear best evidence approach that people often try multiple different medicines and in combinations, and that's where it kind of gets messy because often, you know, it, it, there's just not a really effective treatment for it, so not sure if you have any other.
1: No, I think I mean those are two of the, the common medications that I would use in that in that setting. Um, I think though important along with everything that you just said is to be specific about mod- monitoring for side effects. So it's one thing to put somebody on risperidone, but definitely you or I perform regular physical examinations on our patients to make sure they're not developing the. PARKINSON'S LIKE SIDE EFFECTS yeah. OR IF THEY'RE ON A MEDICATION THAT CAUSES uh, PROBLEMS WITH ELECTRICAL TRANSMISSION IN THEIR HEART, I AM GETTING AN ELECTROCARDIOGRAM OR AN ELECTRIC MAP OF THEIR HEART TO MEASURE THAT ON A REGULAR BASIS AND THEN ALWAYS TRYING TO, AFTER PERIODS WHERE THINGS HAVE maybe STABILIZED, TRYING TO DECREASE THE DOSES OF MEDICATION TO SEE WHAT WOULD HAPPEN AND IN THE SITUATION WHERE THEY'RE STILL AGITATED, YOU, do, you WOULDN'T DO THAT. YOU'D PROBABLY INCREASE THE MEDICATIONS. But just as a general principle, when you're on these medications, which can be harmful, periodically going back and always trying to pare it down
0: to a a simpler regimen, and you know, should if it's not helpful, can we stop it? Absolutely. Uh, The one other I want to give a shout out to a common and uh, disruptive side effect to antipsychotics that I feel is underappreciated and one that I always worry about in people with dementia, Um, and that is one called akathisia or restlessness. So especially some of the medicines like risperidone, but really all of the antipsychotics can cause dramatic restlessness or akathisia as a side effect. This can make the person more agitated. So there's a few different medicines that in the setting of dementia may have a paradoxical or the opposite reaction that you're looking for. And that side effect of akathisia can make somebody internally restless so they feel they have to move more they may appear more agitated they may not be able to express that so i think that's one of the other important side effects uh, that people need to consider when they're thinking about an antipsychotic in the management of the symptoms of dementia the other thing that i always get a bit perturbed about is off-label use of medicines for Mm -hmm. sleep now in this uh, case somebody's using mirtazapine which is an antidepressant medicine that has um, uh, sedation may be a beneficial side effect. So with both the quetiapine or Seroquel and mirtazapine, I notice a lot of people using those medicines now off-label. In other words, Health Canada has not approved mirtazapine as a drug to help with sleep. Health Canada has not approved quetiapine as a drug to help with sleep. All of these medicines have side effects none of them have compelling evidence that they're great for help with sleep. So I think always be cautious about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, if it helps, great maybe, but still monitor for, you know, if it's helping and something else that was started, you know, can you come off of it? So
1: I think it's a great point. And, you know, there are, um, there are points where you're, you're stuck and you don't have great evidence, but the patient, Or their family is suffering so much that you have to do something and in that situation you know talking about the off-label use it's always helpful to have a discussion with your physician about the fact that this is off-label use this medication although it's a small increase does increase your risk of having a stroke or a heart attack or dying and i always do that with my patients and say this is off-label it's not approved ethically we're able to do this these are all of the risks associated with it. And I'm going to document and tell you those risks. These are the potential benefits that we're looking. These are the steps that we're going to take to decrease the risks of a bad thing that's going to happen. And, and this is how we're going to monitor for those things. Yeah. So, treat, that's it a, treat it as
0: a, a, a test, a trial. It's an experiment. Yeah. Really, and, yeah. and if it helps, great. But if it doesn't, here's our cut point. Before we move on to the rest of the Q&A portion of the show, I'd just like to take a few moments to tell everyone a little bit more about the iGerryCare.ca website. Here you can find a number of lessons which cover a range of topics from the basics of understanding dementia, management options, brain health, and caregiver wellness to name a few. In addition to these lessons, you'll also have access to our live event video recordings, as well as email-based learning options. We're constantly looking to raise awareness about iJerrycare, develop new educational materials, and maintain this as a free resource for caregivers. If you'd like to help, you can support our program by clicking on the Donate button on the top right portion of our website. 100% of your donation goes to iJerrycare. Now, with that out of the way, let's get back to the show. Lots of great questions coming in. Um, Question from St. Catharines. My wife takes 10 milligrams twice a day of memantine. She appears to have stopped most of her anger, but she's still unable to do very simple things. Would an additional type of drug be helpful or just leave things as is? I mean, that's, that's a great question. Do you want to, do you want to just describe memantine first? Because it's not one of the ones that you mentioned earlier.
1: Yes. So um, memantine is an NMDA receptor antagonist. So it's different. We talked about ACH being a neurotransmitter and being useful for uh, memory propagation as well as a lot of other things throughout the body. But um, uh, NMDA receptor and the glutamate pathway is important in uh, neurotoxicity. So the death of neurons we think, and by blocking that receptor, potentially we can decrease the amount of harm that the nerve cells experience and hopefully stabilize disease over time.
0: And right now, um, you know, memantine can be one of the other effective tools in the toolbox in Mm -hmm. terms of um, a cognitive enhancer from a different category it is not covered on most provincial uh, formularies to my no, knowledge so no, no. you have to pay out of pocket or maybe some people's insurance so mm-hmm. it's it's less commonly used uh here so back to the question um is there any benefit it sounds like there's been some benefit in terms of some symptoms like anger um is there any added benefit of uh adding something else to the to the memantine i think um so
1: probably what we would consider is adding a cholinesterase inhibitor in that setting. Um, I do question why that wouldn't have been tried. So mm. going back to your doctor and, and making sure it hasn't been tried already,
0: it may or making may.
1: sure that there wasn't a contraindication or reason not to take the medication, such as you know low heart rate or a heart block or something to begin with, um, if there hasn't been a contraindication and the memantine has been working and you really think that the person will have a benefit, or you think there could be a benefit, and you're willing to take that risk, then you could do that. But kind of, memantine's approved for use in moderate to severe dementias, whereas cholinesterase inhibitors are uh, approved for mild, moderate, and severe dementias. So if you're at the severe stage, the likelihood of you taking an additional medication and all of a sudden going from not being able to do your laundry to being able to do your laundry is really unlikely. So, again, we can't give specific yeah, but, medical but, advice. But
0: always evaluating the risks of yeah. too many medicines, increasing doses versus the benefits, which may not be clinically that that big. So it's always important to evaluate that.
1: That makes sense. So if you're on one medication or two medications and you're a fairly robust person that has a lot of um, you know, good body mass and hasn't had a lot of side effects from medications in the past, then you can try it. Uh, but
0: and i do think you know again back to sort of what we talked about at the beginning maybe a few clinical tips sort of start low go slow is one yeah. of those and sometimes it might be better to have just one medicine and continue to optimize or titrate or increase the dose in other cases if you can't tolerate the higher dose maybe the low dose of two medicines could be useful but it's just it's such a dangerous game of having too many medicines. So I I would say on balance, there aren't many people that we see where we say, you know what, you're not on enough medicines. (laughs) Mostly the issue is just way too many medicines Mm -hmm. and maybe one or two were effective back in the day, but who can tell now because it's just a toxic soup. Right. So, okay. So many good questions coming in. A question from Fredericton. Do anticholinergic medications worsen dementia if Lewy body dementia is present or Parkinsonian symptoms? Um, I think the best answer for this is probably yes. So mm-hmm. uh, anticholinergic medications seem to be able to worsen cognitive symptoms in people even without dementia. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are um, people who have Parkinsonism that might be caused by antipsychotic medicines. One of the treatments for those symptoms, not in people with dementia, can be the use of anticholinergic drugs. So that's a setting where somebody doesn't have dementia, they're given an antipsychotic medicine, they develop Parkinsonism. Anticholinergic treatments can be helpful for them, but those patients may also develop cognitive side effects or impairments from the anticholinergic medicines. And we do see Cognitive side effects with anticholinergic drugs in any of the dementias including Lewy body dementia
1: So you you would probably say you know 95 times out of 100 or 99 times out of 100 Taking an anticholinergic medication in the context of Lewy body dementia would be a bad thing. Yeah, probably well Evaluate the the risks and
0: benefits. There may be there may be a compelling reason Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, be aware that there's a risk of worsening cognition with any anticholinergic. Yeah. You haven't mentioned multi-infarct dementia. My father was diagnosed with this after he died from a stroke. So that's uh, we, we uh, multi-infarct dementia is the term that used to be used. Um, we, uh, we tend to refer to it now as uh, vascular dementia. And um, as with many of the dementias, in In life, the label that we say is, you know it's possible or probable. So if somebody has had uh, multiple strokes, their risk of developing uh, a vascular dementia or a multi-infarct dementia goes up. Um, again, some of the some of the medicines that we're talking about now uh, can be helpful. In the setting of vascular dementias as well, and as we talk about in uh, our lesson on the types of dementias, uh, good blood vessel health and mm-hmm. managing your risks of uh, primary, you know, stroke prevention is one of the best things that you can do if if somebody has a, a vascular dementia. Absolutely. Anything else to comment on? No, it's great. Another tough question. Please comment on current best practice re, deprescribing. uh, cholinesterase inhibitors, or CIs, in severe end-stage dementia?
1: Mm -hmm. So I I think a a good starting point for this question is, is there any evidence that cholinesterase inhibitors provide benefit in end-stage dementia? And the answer is yes, they they do. They can um, provide an improved cognitive score. They can improve behavioral symptoms. uh, And the same goes for memantine as well. The question I always ask myself is you know before that happened i'm always looking for side effects so if you have any kind of side effect in any way and your dementia is se- severe I'd get rid of it um, and then when you're kind of in a bed-bound state or you're having recurrent aspiration or you're experiencing weight loss and it looks like potentially the cholinesterase inhibitors inhibitor is impacting your appetite you have less than a year left in your life or expectation of living less than a year, then also I would get rid of it in that sense. And then you never just get rid of it cold turkey. Usually you'll taper it down, slow increase up in medications, slow taper off in medications, and then you can observe if the patient's getting any benefit. If you get rid of the medication and there's agitation or increased anxiety, uh, increased calling out, then you could always put the medication back on, but it's worthwhile trying. And I think people get a little bit hung up on this and you know well i can't get rid of the cholinesterase inhibitor it's not a life sustaining therapy it's not a a miracle drug so be reasonable responsible and um, vigilant around what you're doing and then you can't actually go wrong in that setting because you know you're not saving the person's life yeah
0: i think it's uh, especially if uh, in a end stage situation uh, where you as the caregiver or the substitute decision maker, you're trying to make the best decisions to respect the wishes of the person. One of, one of the things that can be helpful in the early stages of dementia is to talk a bit more about advanced medical directives mm-hmm. to try to get a sense of what that person's express wishes are about certain types of Treatments, vital treatments usually, like would you like CPR? But you can ask some questions early on about, well, what about certain medicines? And, uh, you know, so I I think that's a trend now that we're not great at doing is actually end of life planning and advanced medical directives and having some of the conversations uh, early on in the stages of dementia can really help the substitute decision maker to be sure that they're acting in the express wishes of that person so that when the time comes to make a difficult decision and you're evaluating the risks benefits and and uh, quality of life you have a clearer sense of what the person with dementia's you know express wishes or preferences and values would have been so i would encourage people to look there's some really good i I think we're probably going to do a live event on end of life planning and advanced directives and and things like that but um, you know, the more you can talk about some of these challenging conversations early on in the process, uh, the better you can be sure that the values and preferences of the person with dementia are respected uh, later on. I always
1: tell my patients, um, you know, they're not easy conversations to have. They're uncomfortable conversations to have. And I think that's why doctors and patients and allied healthcare providers can sometimes be avoidant. but. Uh, what's much more uncomfortable is when you get in the situation where it's a high-stakes game and it's really en- like life-or-death planning and you don't have that information. It's much more uncomfortable when you arrive at the setting where you don't know what the patient would have wanted uh, and you can't make an appropriate
0: decision. So, And then you have f- people like me that just show up at cocktail parties and start talking about these things (laughs) inappropriately. But, uh, you know, I I think it is really important to have these conversations. We have so many good questions. I'm going to try and keep going to get through them. Um, Some are are comments too. Uh, General feedback. Drug names are difficult to remember. It would be great to have a written list so that we can discuss uh, with the doctor. On our care lessons, we do have the written names of some of these medicines, and I totally agree uh, not only are there a lot of different drug names, and some of them are difficult, as doctors, we invent two different names for every drug, you know a generic and it's a terrible. trade name, <laughs> just to confuse people more so sorry about that wasn't my idea, uh, but in the IGRI care lessons, we do often write down the names of some of the the longer drug names and and we put both the the generic drug name and and the trade names so uh, that's that's one, one way around that.
1: A helpful thing to do maybe is also ask for a blister pack. Um, you know, It's like an easy thing to do where the pharmacist will put all of your medications in kind of a cardboard plastic cutout where all you have to do is pop out your medication for morning, uh, noon, supper, and bedtime. And you can make sure that the patient's taking all of their medications, but at the same time it provides you instant access to a, a, a list of almost all the medications. Occasionally there could be bottles outside, but it's an easy way to have a list. Then you just take the blister pack with you to your doctor's um, appointments, and you can have them explain what the different pills are used for.
0: Um, Many of the the pharmacies now offer either a secure online approach Mm -hmm. where you can kind of log in and print out your list, or certainly if you go to the pharmacy and request the list, that's always a good... and, And many physicians, it's good to bring the actual... Dosette or blister pack or pill bottles with you when you go, because um, it's very helpful sometimes just to check what what the label is as the as the healthcare provider.
1: And I think it's also important um, if you're the the care provider. Let's say you're a daughter or a son when you're going in to discuss medications, because medications can have such profound cognitive side effects. You know, I've had patients where the husband is taking the wife's Tylenol number threes. And so just finding all of the medications whether there's empty pill bottles or active pill bottles a blister pack you know all note, of them.
0: to self the shoebox is not a the suitable shoe box. Yes. I, I have absolutely yeah, yeah. seen people who have brought in the pills in mm-hmm. one big uh mix and yeah. it you know so uh, dosettes blister packs and deep prescribing i i'm tempted to make a bit of an executive decision that we we keep going and sure. extend this uh, session. Maybe we go to the another 10 minutes because we're, we're really at our 45-minute mark. Um, hey, but caregivers, care partners aren't given training on how to properly engage people living with dementia and how to use non-pharmacologic, non-medication approaches. Uh, let the docs prescribe training for the care partners instead of antipsychotics. Uh, and I, I think that's really part of our... Uh, role with iJerryCare is to provide high quality, online, accessible, evidence-based education for caregivers. Uh, we do include conversations about the medicines, but as we've talked about, uh, the most important interventions are non-medication related. Um, so hopefully this service is uh, is helping to improve that. And I think um,
1: connecting the different services. So definitely we have people that tune in from ACROSS CANADA AND ACTUALLY THE UNITED STATES um, AS WELL AND SO IT'S GOING TO BE SLIGHTLY DIFFERENT DEPENDING ON THE JURISDICTION THAT YOU'RE IN BUT LET'S SAY FOR INSTANCE HERE WE HAVE BEHAVIORAL SUPPORTS ONTARIO WHICH WILL GO INTO THE HOME AND and HELP YOU uh, LEARN WHAT YOU NEED TO DO AND THERE ARE EDUCATIONAL TOOLS FOR um, FORMAL CAREGIVERS OR healthcare PROVIDERS TO LEARN THESE AS WELL AND SO We don't want to recreate the wheel and create a lesson on everything. We do have some managing behaviors aspects, but also uh, pointing you to the fact that there is going to be something in your jurisdiction which is there to help you deal with behaviors and learn the tools and tasks you need. And whether that's the Alzheimer's Society helping you, whether that's a community care organization that's helping you, I think the question is being able to ask them, you know where? Uh, what can I use in my specific town or city or province or state to get that information that I need?
0: Someone reminded me the other day too that um, the two one one service. You know we have four one one for information and nine one one for emergencies. 211 exists as a service across many areas of the country, mm-hmm. and you can dial that to find out about community and social services related to it. They have sort of skilled, trained operators, and many of them speak multiple languages and will provide you an answer on the phone or contact you back with information about community resources. Um, we got to thank you for talking about the fact that antipsychotics can cause the very behaviors they're supposed to address. Here's a tough one. What is the evidence regarding the use of high doses of metformin for what some believe is type 3 diabetes or dementia related to insulin levels? That's a great question. I don't
1: have an answer for that. I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I know there was some research in intranasal insulin a few years ago to see if changing the metabolic paradigm could improve things, but I haven't actually reviewed the evidence on that. So. I,
0: I have not either. What I what I would comment is I think there's more and more literature now with respect to the the f- potential for cognitive impairments and dementia um, as as a, a a risk, if you like, for people with poorly controlled diabetes, right. whether it's yeah. insulin dependent or not. I, I'm I'm not really familiar with the this notion of the type three diabetes or dementia related to insulin.
1: And it is interesting that something like high blood pressure is a risk factor for vascular dementia, as you would expect causing blood dam- blood vessel damage and diabetes is a risk factor for uh, vascular dementia, yeah. but there are also risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, yeah. you know, so there, there is something there, but I'm not sure exactly. And generally what happens if there was a big trial that was practice changing that was going to have a large impact in changing the course of Alzheimer's disease or dementia related to anything, we would be hearing about it. But we'll look into that and maybe get back to you on the. So the in the uh, comments section.
0: Yeah, so the, um, there was a general comment about thanking for answering a question before it was posed. And I guess it was, it was a comment that many patients get diagnosed with dementia and almost immediately prescribed medicines for depression, sleep disturbance, anxiety, and, and we would certainly say that's not really best best practice. So. Right. Another question that was a follow-up question to the, uh, the person who asked about the, the cannabis for um, dementia and arthritic pain. What do we think of the concept of sertraline being prescribed for the same patient, the 80-year-old with dementia and severe arthritic pain mentioned above, and celecoxib for pain? Uh, what I would say in general is you know, the, the sertraline is not one of the antidepressants that is typically prescribed for pain. Mm-hmm. It has a, it, sertraline is also known as Zoloft. It's uh, quite an effective antidepressant for the treatment of depression in general and quite an effective antidepressant for the treatment of various anxiety disorders. The data to support the use of sertraline and even other antidepressants for the treatment of depression in dementia is not that strong. So again, I would say I'm not hearing a really compelling, in this little blurb, you know, nothing leaps out to me to say, ah, yes, sertraline for dementia and severe pain. Uh, The Celicopsib is is a, a type of Uh, Pain reliever that also has potential for side effects, but is sometimes used when you know you had suggested before something like uh, Tylenol. The the one thing that I would say the the best evidence would provide for treatment of severe arthritis and dementia would probably be exercise. Yeah, it's about the closest thing we have to a miracle pill. Uh, I guess it's um, there's some data on um, the use of mobilization, physical activity physical therapy, exercise. So.
1: I've, been, I've been really blown away in my practice, and the people for, with chronic low back pain that will take their core exercises seriously, and the people with severe osteoarthritis of their knees that will strengthen their quadriceps muscles, which are right here, which offload the pressure and stress across the joint. I think one thing, so most of the antidepressants that are used to treat pain are used to treat nerve pain specifically. Yeah. There's one antidepressant called duloxetine, that has some evidence for treating arthritic pain. But again, are you exercising? Are you on regular Tylenol? Have you tried something like Voltaren as an anti-inflammatory? Because none of those have cognitive side effects. Are there potentially that you've been using um, injections within the joint and seeing potentially a physiatrist for that? But sertraline, I'm not aware of any evidence for treating musculoskeletal nociceptive pain that's not related to nerves. Exactly. So. Not, a, I don't okay. think that's a good choice.
0: What about non-pharmacological interventions like music or reminiscence therapy? Um, I think we, we do talk about mm. that in terms of uh, the treatments for dementia. There's not a ton of super compelling evidence, but there is a little bit um, accruing. Uh, there have been some new studies uh, on uh, the role of music therapy. Uh, they're, they're not very high quality studies, but I think the risk of harm in most cases is fairly low um, and you could always try them i think there's um, there's there's not so many studies, uh, but there are more being done on the reminiscence therapy, which is uh, again, I think those things might be worth a trial even if there's not great um, strong evidence for it because the risk of harms I think are relatively low
1: yeah i I think I would add to that um, uh, scent therapy, aromatherapy yeah. as well. So aromatherapy, light therapy, reminiscence, uh, training. You know, I, I find that interesting, music therapy, I find an, it interesting that there's a, a bit of a signal across each one of those different domains that there are studies, and they are showing that there's positive impacts, but they're not high quality, and so... I think we've talked about this before and maintaining a creative approach because, let's say, you know, jazz music might not work for everybody, right? right? It kind of depends on your your personhood
0: before you had And certain, I can imagine, I have a sensitive smell. I can imagine certain aromatherapy would really annoy me as the care provider, but it it might take you a while and some trial and error to find the right type of music or aromas that are helpful.
1: I think that might be the reason why these studies are hard to do is because it's not just one easy intervention, so... You can try them out. And you said there's little harm in trying them. So. Okay.
0: The, um, uh Another feedback. Thank you for the incredible opportunity. I look forward to these sessions. And uh, thank you. I'm really glad people can join. Uh, I, you know, We try and stick to the 45 minutes, but there were just a ton of really good questions. I'm saving a doozy for the end as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the UK, they're using ultrasound for Alzheimer's. Is that real? Uh, Nothing's no, I, real in the UK, is it? Well, <laughs> I think,
1: you know, just because you're doing something with, in the confines of scientific study doesn't mean that there's a real large impact. And usually what happens is there'll be one study that happens, and then there'll be multiple other studies that happen that will validate your initial approach. And so um, I don't get too excited. I remain cautiously optimistic. And, you know, this is not... Been translated into I mean, yeah. I'm not really sure what practice. whether this
0: is part of a diagnostic workup or being used as a as a therapeutic thing. I mean, I could understand if it would if it were part of a research protocol where you might be looking for you know vascular lesions as part of an ultrasound of the arteries. Or, or do you, are you aware of some not, kind of treatment? I'm not aware
1: of anything yeah. like that. Or the the transcranial magnetic stimulation stuff as well right? yeah There's,
0: TMS is that's a yeah. treatment that's uh you know has some evidence for the treatment of depression right but not yeah. so not so much in the setting of dementia
1: but so. active research going
0: on in in these yeah. areas um, final question and this is a toughie uh, well actually one one comment that came through prior to the session that I think reinforces things I discovered as a participant in an Alzheimer's study that an unrelated drug I was on was causing brain farts. And I think this sort of highlights what we were talking about. There's a lot of medicines out there with the potential for anticholinergic or other side effects that might worsen memory impairments or other symptoms in Alzheimer's. So very important to look at the full picture, all of the medicines, you know, Talk to the pharmacist before you start on an over-the-counter drug, because as we were saying, things like Nyquil, Gravel, uh, Gravel, all have anticholinergic side effects. Talk to your doctor before uh, taking, you know, uh, new prescriptions. Ask them if you can come off anything. The de-prescribing, um, you know, those those things are all important to trying to minimize the risk of harms. Okay, and our closing. I have a question about aggression and agitation in someone with Parkinson's and vascular dementia. He's refusing meds most days and when not taking Seroquel gets extremely paranoid as well. Makes it hard to visit him and interact with him. What can be done since the Seroquel can uh, can only be given orally? So a lot of issues with this. That's why we saved it to sort of do a mini unpacking. Couple things. Uh, one important thing relates to consent. So, is the person um, capable of understanding the information about the treatment that's been proposed? Are they capable of consenting or refusing? So, the person with dementia—they may have dementia, but they may still be capable of making a decision about whether to take the Seroquel or not. Mm-hmm. So, if they are capable and they refuse it, then there's really not. Much you can do about that, other than you know try other suggestions or you know incentives. You know you basically have to use uh, other behavioral strategies or abandon those strategies and just say, "Well, I'm sorry, I can't visit today." If the person is not capable and the substitute decision maker is in agreement that the seroquel or the quetiapine improves this person's quality of life, it's not an easy. A thing there, and people are divided on this notion of what we call covert administration of medication, which is whether or not it's ethical to give somebody a medicine if they're refusing it. And it usually only, as I said, the ethicists are divided on this question, but in the case where somebody is not capable, the quality of life seems like it would be improved. The risk-benefit ratio really favors benefit. And the substitute decision maker is strongly in favor of this and feels that it would be, you know, if the person with dementia did have decision making capacity, they would choose to take the medicine if they weren't incapable. That's the kind of setting where Mm -hmm. people sort of say, okay, maybe maybe covert administration is warranted if the person can't be cajoled into taking it. Um, so then we have the issue of the root of administration. Mm-hmm. So Seroquel is just taken by mouth or orally. There are some medicines that have a quick dissolve on the tongue. Um, there are other antipsychotic medicines like that. There are some antipsychotic medicines that are like long-acting or even short-acting injectable formats. That can involve a little bit more force. So you begin thinking about, yeah, even if, even if it's ethical, I'm not sure that we want to expose the person to that, it could be a bit traumatizing. And some of those medicines that are injectables run the risk of more side effects for Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think those are some of the things to be considered. There are some medicines that can be crushed up. I think if the decision is made to go forward with some kind of covert administration of something. Talk with the pharmacist about whether there's a way to do that with what's worked to date. So some capsule medicines, you can open the capsule, put it on something like peanut butter or toast or jam, disguise it in apple juice. And again, I'm not saying this is simple. It's not. It's a complex ethical issue. And there, you know, people struggle with this. But if it seems like this is what the person with dementia would have wanted that it's ethically, in, you know, the things favor that it would have a benefit rather than harm, then there, there can be some justification on some occasions for that. So very tough question. One of the things that I just alluded to before talking about advanced medical directives, this is one of those areas, in some parts of psychiatry, we talk about the, the Ulysses Clause, and that can be something where uh, the person with dementia before it becomes more advanced might say, if I refuse this medicine, you have my consent to give it to me anyway, or you have my, my permission to do whatever it takes to give me this medicine. So that's one of the types of clauses that increasingly people are looking at with respect to advanced directives around some of these specific questions. So I wanna thank everybody for joining us on mm-hmm. this extended dance version of the iJerryCare <laughs> Care live event of, uh, on medicines and dementia, fantastic questions. Um, Our reminder that our next event is March 27th, and that will be on the risk of falls in dementia. And we have a special guest star in uh, Dr. Alex Papianu that will be joining us uh, from from the Jairus team at McMaster. I want to thank everybody that's involved in our our production. Uh, Let's thank our sponsor, the Canadian Centre for Aging and Brain Health Innovation, or CABI, Uh, Powered by Baycrest, Uh, we've had support from the Jaris Center at Hamilton Health Sciences, McMaster University, the Hamilton Health Sciences Foundation, uh, our local chapter of the Alzheimer's Society of Hamilton-Halton, and uh, our team from the Division of E-Learning Innovation. Um, Reminder that we have our survey, which is pinned at the top of our Facebook comments. Um, You get a chance to vote on what topics you want to see and hear in the future. And we have the option to ignore that and do what we want anyway. (laughs) Uh, A reminder that teamwork makes the dream work. I want to thank Stephanie and Mike and Jamie for another great live event. Thank you very much. We'll see you March 27th. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the episode, you can subscribe to our website so you don't miss a thing. And if you didn't enjoy the episode, let us know how we can improve. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.